Good morning. It's good to be back uh, with the Saints finally. Um, the passage we're considering this morning uh, is to be found in Romans and chapter 3. And we're looking at the first 20 verses, a lengthy passage, the first 20 verses of Romans 3. What advantage then has the Jew, or what is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe, will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar. As it is written that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust to inflict wrath? I speak as a man. Certainly not, for then how will God judge the world? For the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory. Why am I also still judged as a sinner? And why not say... Let us do evil that good may come. As we are slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say their condemnation is just. What then are we better than they? Not at all, for we have previously charged both uh, Jew and Greeks or Gentiles that they are under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Amen. Um, I trust you've been enjoying your studies through the Book of Romans and um, have come to see something of uh, just the brilliance of the mind of this great apostle as he strings together um, this case, um, this argument, this great really legal document which, which demonstrates the very fundamentals of the Christian faith. And it's very important as you work through the book to try and maintain the thought flow that, that Paul is, is, is getting at. And um, in our chapter today, we're closing off a section that he's begun in chapter 1, verse 18. There in, in, verse, in the 18th verse of the first chapter, he, he speaks that the wrath of God has been revealed and that those who are unrighteous are under the wrath of God. Now, he then proceeds to demonstrate that really that all mankind 
are unrighteous. He brings the, the, the Gentile, as it were, into the courtroom first, and, and God sits there as judge, judge and his perfect moral standard as the bar, and, and the, the charge that's brought against the Gentile is that the testimony of creation and of conscience was given to you, and you rejected it, and you're under the wrath of God. You're guilty. And then the Jew in chapter 2, he's brought in as well. And the Jew with his law and with his circumcision and being the covenant people of God. And yet they, they broke the law and they too are under the wrath of God. And their circumcision has become uncircumcision. Now Paul said some pretty inflammatory things at the end of the latter uh, part of chapter 2. And it's, it's, he's been bringing this case before them as the, the prose, prosecution lawyer, as it were. And now here, it's as if the, the, um, attorney, the, the defense attorney stands up, uh, the Jewish defense attorney, and he's got a few objections to make to Paul. And that's what we have here in the first eight verses of our chapter. And we're going to look at those objections, and then he, he concludes the argument from... Um, 9 down to 20. Now my intention this morning is to break the passage up into uh, three sections. First, verses 1 and 2, looking at the privilege, the privilege of the Jew. And to them were committed the oracles of God. And then ver from verses 3 to 8, as he, as he continues down the objections, he gets to the, the pronouncement in verse 8 that their condemnation is just. The privilege the pronouncement, and finally, um, from verses 9 down to the end, really, um, looking at uh, the portrait of a man under sin and the universality of sin. Um, so that's the intention. Now, uh, to look at the privilege. The question is asked, well, what advantage then has the Jew? Or what is the prophet of circumcision. Now the, the objection comes and, and, and really they're saying, now Paul, I think, I think you've maybe gone a bit too far here. You, you, you're really making the argument, is there really no difference, is there really no advantage to being a Jew over a Gentile? Now Paul deals with it, this at, at, at once and he's, he, he's really trying to demonstrate to him that's not what I was arguing. It wasn't a matter of advantage. It was a matter of position before a holy God. And he says just the mere fact that one is a Jew or the mere fact that one is circumcised does not save him. So in terms of salvation, there is no difference in their position. But in terms of, of advantage... He says in verse 2, there is, there's, there's great advantage, there's great privilege in being a Jew. And what, what is that? Well, chiefly, it says in my translation, our first, of first importance. And the idea here, I think um, it's first in, in uh, order, because he's going to actually, this is just a note, because when you come to chapter 9, he's actually going to take this up and continue on down through the other various blessings. But it's also chief in nature. It's primary. This is, this is the most marvelous thing that they had been giving. This is the greatest of all the privileges that the Jews had come into. What is this? That they have the, to commit it unto them, or, or maybe better translated, entrusted unto them the oracles of God. 
They were custodians of the oracles of God. Now this expression, the oracles of God, it's, it's used four times in our New Testament. And, and the idea is it's divine utterance, divine promise. Really what Paul's getting at is you have the word of God. And this was of great and tremendous uh, privilege because God had chosen Israel. He had chosen them as his peculiar people, a special people, a special uh, inheritance um, for himself. Now, the idea is this. No other nation were given uh, the words of God, the oracles of God. They had a knowledge of God. We've seen that already. But God hadn't communicated in this way to them. And thus they, stand, they stood in this special relationship with God. And it was a tremendous privilege. But not only that, contained within those oracles of God were promises and were truth um, pertaining to, to his son and the coming of his son. All the way throughout the Old Testament, you can see scripture pointing to the coming of the Messiah. These great promises that behold, um, a branch will be raised up. And there's so many you could, could refer to. And this was the great privilege that these people had, the, the word of God. Now, I just want to stop before we move on because as we look around the room here, you see in, in profuseness there's Bibles. There's Bibles everywhere. We all have our, our, our Bibles. And I just want us to stop and realize just the privilege that we have to have the Word of God, the completed canon, the infallib- infallible and living Word of God in our own language. And, and he's given us this tremendous, this precious gift. And what a privilege it is indeed. He's entrusted us with this idea of to, to, to guard it, the custodians of it. And he's entrusted it to each one of us here sitting today. We have the word of God. Now the question really comes, well, do we cherish the word of God? Do we hold the word of God in, in high esteem? Do we read the Bible? You know, uh, the idea here is not so much is your Bible in pristine condition. It's is your Bible falling apart. Do you seek to hear the voice of God as you, as you turn through the pages of scriptures? Do you seek to learn how God would have you live from scripture and to live that way? You know, it's, it's a tragedy. So many Christians, they just, they don't read their Bibles. And, and, and when there is this privilege, with that inherently comes responsibility. And within this book, we have, we have the key and we have the treasures of the, the wisdom and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says to Timothy, the wisdom that will lead you unto salvation. And he's given us his, his word. He's given us the Bible so that we can learn of our sin and our position before a holy God. But he's given us our Bible so that we can be led to Christ. And so that we can get to know Christ as our personal Lord and, and, and Savior. And so that we begin to, to hunger more and more for the word of God. You see, the, the truth of the matter is... If the word of God, if your Bible is not something which is important to you, 
and is not something that you value, you will never grow as a Christian. And the responsibility really lies in our response to what's contained within the scriptures. And just owning a Bible and just, just coming to church, that doesn't save you. The responsibility lies in the response of what you do with, with what scripture says and says about your sin and about a holy God. And I, I was just picturing my mind this, just this morning, in fact, just on the, on the judgment day on, at the great white throne when the masses stand before that throne and the Lord says to them, how have you valued my word? And there's just a silence because they never held in high esteem and they spurned the word of God and they weren't interested in it. Oh, may we be people that see the inestimable value of the word of God and understand the privilege that we have to have the oracles of God in, in our midst. Now, <clears throat> that's the privilege. Now, to look at the pronouncement. Now, he, he, he's going to navigate his way through these, these various um, objections um, that, that are raised, um, and, and it's going to culminate in this great pronouncement there in verse 8. Now, I'll admit this is a particularly difficult passage, and um, it's hard in some ways to follow the argument of Paul, what he's getting at here. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, on, on his sermon of this, um, on this passage, he says, it's generally agreed that this is one of the most difficult passages, not only in the epistle to the Romans, but in the whole of the New Testament. Now, I'm not sure I go that far, but it is, it's tricky, and um, my intention this morning with, with the time we have is to try just get something of the thought flow as, as we work down through the passage and understand, although the argument itself may be a bit enigmatic, to, to try pull out just the simple applications, and I think there are in this passage. Now, <clears throat> this, is, this is the objection. We've seen the privilege of the word of God. This is the position that, that, that these people are in. They've been given the oracles of God, the Jewish people. Now the objection comes and says, well, uh, they haven't been very faithful to that word. You yourself, Paul, would say that. They haven't kept the law. They haven't been faithful. They haven't believed those oracles. And does their unbelief, therefore, nullify the faithfulness of God? In essence, that the question is, does their uh, unbelief, does it, does it mean that God is not faithful? Now Paul puts, puts the answer to this question very simply um, and, and right away in verse 4, certainly not. He says, he's absolutely not. And this is, this is a dogmatic and um, emphatic statement when, when Paul uses this expression. He says, may it never be. In fact, perish the very thought from your mind. And he backs this up and he says, let God be true and every man a liar. Now the, the simple thought here is this. That even if everyone on the face of this earth were to turn around and reject God's, the faithfulness of God, and were to reject and not believe in his word, it doesn't make one single difference to the faithfulness of God. 
He is faithful and he is righteous and he is true. And there's nothing that man does that will change that. And even though all men are liars, it's quite an indictment, is it not? God remains true and God remains faithful. It's possibly a loose uh, quotation from Psalm 58. And, and the idea is there's nothing we can do to violate the faithfulness of God. And, and to back this up, Paul's going to take one of these very oracles he's been talking about. He's going to make a quotation from Psalm 51, a penitential psalm of David. When, as he writes it, he's, he's just under the crushing weight of the, the sin uh, with Bathsheba. And he pours his heart out. And you read the psalm, he speaks. He, he says, I've transgressed. My sin is ever before me. And, and he, he understands the position he's in with his sin, with his sin pushing down upon him against thee and thee alone have I sinned. But what David comes to realize in, in that psalm in verse 4 is, is, and this is what we see in the quotation, is that everything that God says about me, despite how I act, it's true. And you are right when you condemn me. And the point of of this quotation is, is simple. It's, it's even though David had been unfaithful, even though David had lied, God remained faithful and God remained justified in his, his pronouncement of, of David's sin through Samuel. You're that man, David. You're the man who had sinned. Now, I hope, you, I hope you see something and follow something of the arguments. The oracles were given. They didn't believe in the oracles, the Jewish people, but that in no way nullifies the faithfulness of God. And in fact, and, and it's, it's seen in the case of David, actually the unbelief of the Jews, it puts on display God's faithfulness. Now, this is the, really, that's, that leads on to the next expostulation, the next um, objective that, that's, that's put set before Paul. He's saying, well, the, the Jew comes and says, well, if our unbelief makes God look good, actually demonstrates his righteousness and demonstrates his faithfulness, well, how can God judge us? In other words, how can God punish a people who have magnified his faithfulness and truth? Now, you can just see how, how subtle this argument is, and just even the pride in it, that, that we've made God look good, how dare he judge us? And Paul even adds here, he, he puts in brackets, he's, I speak as a man, he says, this is an outrageous argument. And yet he, he condescends to answer, and, and it's really a brilliant answer because he appeals to something that the Jews believed in, and he appeals to the fact that God will one day judge the world. And, and the Jews believed that there would be a final judgment. And in that judgment, the Gentiles would be judged. You see? And, and the idea is this. Paul, Paul is, is backing them into a corner. He's saying, well, the Gentiles, you believe yourselves, the Gentiles will be judged. Why? Because of their unrighteous deeds. You see them as unrighteous people. And therefore, if they're judged because of their unrighteousness, what about your, your own unrighteousness is effectively what he's saying. He's saying that the unrighteousness of the Gentile has the very same effect as, as the unrighteousness of the Jew. It does put on display the, the righteousness of God. But you believe that they'll be judged, so you too are under wrath and you too are under 
condemnation. And Paul's really saying, he says, God's not a God of partiality. God's not arbitrary in whom he judges. God is a righteous and a faithful judge. Now, in, in verse 7, the objection, again, it's, it's very similar, not so much looking at the righteousness, but at truth. And, and it comes and it says, well, my lie, it, it, it will show the, the truthfulness of God. It will put the truthfulness of God on display. And therefore, does he have right to judge me? And Paul even takes it further in verse 8. He's saying, well, you know, if you're arguing like that, you might as well add, I should just live in sin and I should just live in wickedness because it will be in ever contrast to the perfection of Christ. Now, <clears throat> Christ and God. Now, he's really dealt with this in verse 6 when he talked about the, the, the judgment of the Gentiles. But... Um, he, he, he wraps it up and he brings it all, all to an end. And, and, and really what he's saying at the end of verse 8 is this. You've twisted the words of God. You, you, you've put a tilt on things. You've taken uh, truth and, and you've, you've deformed it so then that you can reject it. And he says, you're playing games with the, the truth of God. And, and I've got one thing to say to you. Your condemnation, your damnation is just. Now that's, that's, Paul, that's not my pronoun. That's, that's the, the, the words of God con, um, through Paul. Your condemnation is just. Don't play games with the truth of the word of God. Now I hope you... And follow the argument, God, he is indeed faithful, no matter how unfaithful we are. And let me tell you that even if your sin in some way exemplifies and puts on display the righteousness of God, that in no way makes you exempt from the judgment of God because you stand condemned and your condemnation is just. Now, I just want to, to pull a, a couple practical points from this you know that first question that's that asked and um, that first objection in verse three this idea of well does does the unbelief put God's display you know I think we can be tempted in our own ways to ask a similar question as we look around this world as it seems to be spiraling out of control and 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 progressing into a state of spiritual insanity and we look around and there's so few Christians and, and we can be tempted to ask the question, well, has God's word failed? But the simple point that Paul is making and I think we need to establish it in our minds is this, even if the whole world were to deny the word of God and were to just revel and glory in sin, it does not make any difference to the fact that God indeed is faithful. And what a comfort it is to the Christian that God is faithful. And no matter the condition of the world, his promises will come true. And he says he'll be with us, he'll be with us. And he'll care for us. And he'll take us to be with himself. And he'll glorify us. He's promised those things and those things indeed will come true. Why? Because he's a faithful God. And nothing can separate us from those promises. Nothing can separate us from the great promise of his love. And let us not forget, because God is faithful, 
He's willing to, to save sinners. And you may be sitting and, and maybe like David, there's something of the weight of your sin bearing down upon, crushing down upon you. And it's as if you're, you're, you're suffocating. There's nothing you can do. Well, well, if you turn to Christ and ask for repentance and run to the foot of the cross, he will forgive your sins and he will grant you newness of life why because he's a faithful God he will forgive you and the burden of sin will be removed what comfort it is to the Christian what consolation to know he'll save but but what condemnation you might sit there and go well I'm not interested in this offer I'm I'm not sure what what I make of all this and I think, I'll just, I think I'll just leave it. I'm not sure the, the, the gospel, I'm just not sure that's true. Well, the reality of the matter is this. You can believe what you want to believe, but it doesn't for a second change the fact that God is true and every man's a liar and that the gospel indeed is true. And it does not change the fact that you're, you're guilty before a holy God and that your condemnation is just. Now, <clears throat> that's the great pronouncement. Seeing the privilege, they didn't respond to that privilege, and thus the, the pronouncement is their condemnation is just. Now, Paul carries on, and he's coming back to really the argument he's been making in, in chapter, chapters 1 and 2, and he's going to wrap the, both the Jew and the Gentile into one here and present the universality of sin. And we're going to look at the portrait of that as we work our way down. Now, it says. <clears throat> He says um, in verse 9, and he puts it once and for all here, for all are under sin. Now, I would say this is not really a passage you, you would choose to speak on. And, and it's quite something as Paul, Paul is not sparing his words. Um, but he says, all are under sin. And, and every word this man chooses is intentional. Not all have sinned. Not all are in sin. But all are under sin and he's, he's really, he's personifying sin. He's saying sin is a tyrant and, and you're slaves to sin. You're under the bondage of sin. Now he's going to establish this point by um, appealing to, to various different quotations from the Old Testament. From verses 11 down to 18. Now, in doing so, as he describes the condition of um, those who are under sin, he's just painting a portrait of man and his heart as it's before a holy God in his natural state. And I, um, you, you'll know the story well of Cromwell when he was getting his, his portrait painted by Samuel Cooper, and, and he says, he's reported to have said, um, to the artist, use your skill to paint my picture truly like me, no flatter at all, but capture all the roughness and the pimples, warts and all, that's where we get the expression, warts and all, um, as you see in me. And that's, that's really what we have here as we work our way down. None are righteous, no, not one. 
He can't be any more emphatic than that. Not a single solitary person on the face of this earth since Adam fell has been righteous. The idea of righteousness is, is obedience, perfect obedience to the law and the commandments of God. A love for God which is primary in our lives. To live a life that glories and honors God. And he says no one in their natural state can do that. None are righteous no, not one. There is none who understands. Now here, it's not that there's not people who are, are not smart. The idea that it's sin has darkened our minds. And we can't understand who God is. And therefore, because we can't fully understand God and all of his holiness, we can't understand ourselves and our position before God. Sins darkened your mind, he says. But not only that, it's darkened your heart. There is none who seek after God. You see, you don't see the value in seeking after God. He's not precious to you. And thus you don't seek after him with your affections. It's affected our mind. It's affected our heart. Verse 12, they've turned aside. It's affected our very will. We turn to do sinful things. And sin, sin has permeated our whole being. And they have together become unprofitable. As a result of sin. Now that word unprofitable has the idea of uselessness, of, of, of worthlessness. And, and society doesn't like to speak in those terms, does it? But, but Christ really what he's saying in that in your natural condition, just useless, just, just worthlessness, unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb or sepulcher. And that's a very vivid picture. As the, you, you would roll away the stone and, and inside the tomb, there's a dead, decaying body and just the stench of it and the putrefaction of it all. And he's saying that's like your throat. It's putrid, infected words that, that, that come out of your mouths. Their tongues have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips. You see, asps, they have a wee, a wee parcel, a wee package of poison that, that's just below their bottom lip. And when they bite into their prey, the fangs burst it and, and the poison comes, it seeps out. And that's the idea. Just your very words, they're, they're venom, they're, they're poisonous. Whose mouth is full of cursing, cursing against God and, and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. You know, I was just looking um, a few weeks ago in, in England and Wales alone. Um, in 2021, this was, there was recorded around 600 abortions a day. Destruction and misery are in their ways. This is the destruction of sin. And as it uh, leaves this, this trail of destruction, there's just this wake of misery. And it's just such a, a, a picture of the world we live in, isn't it? Sin and its destruction, and people are just miserable and unhappy. And they don't know the, the, the peace of God. And then he brings us to the final time. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is the very crux of the matter. There's no fear of God in these people. This is the final great indictment. He says, because the person, he's marginalized God. He's made him irrelevant and therefore he rejects him. And that is cosmic treason. 
And that's the, that's, that's the portrait as Paul puts before us. And just as, as we close, I want to, to just try to tie this all together. You know, I hope that we've seen this morning the, the, the portrait of, of man in sin in this passage. You know, if an artist, artist managed to capture this, it would be a horrendous thing to look upon. We would, we would run from it. And just the sin, and just the darkness. And it, you know, this is the thing, it's so vital that we understand this because if we can't understand man's condition, natural condition, we'll never fully understand the true nature of the cross. And we have to understand our sin and, and, and that we're really spiritual monsters who've trampled under feet the glory of God. And there's no, none that are righteous. There is none who understand, who seek after God. They have turned aside, fully saturated in sin. And there is absolutely nothing they can do to remove a single dark blot. And there's only one thing that can help. That's to turn to Christ. In humility to, to, to run to our Lord Jesus Christ and ask him for forgiveness. And not to just improve your heart, but to, to change and give you a new heart. And the divine physician, he comes and he opens you up and he rips out that heart of deceit and malignity and sin and, and, and he replaces it with, with a heart of flesh that pulses after the love of God. And that's what we need, to be born again. That's our only hope through Christ. Just as I close... We just need to grasp something of the seriousness of this. It's, it's, it's our eternal destiny that's at stake. And if you, if you know, if you're sitting there and it's all just the sin and, and you know you're under the wrath of God, cry out to God in mercy and, and for forgiveness because there's nothing you can do. It's only through the grace and the love of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's so important that we, that we grasp passages like this. It's not something, as I said, you, you want to spend too much time in, in in one regards, but it's so vital because if we don't understand the nature of sin, we really won't see the true majesty and the glory and the resplendence of what happened on the cross. And I think one of the big problems with Christians today is, is we've, we've forgotten what we've been saved from and therefore we don't fully appreciate what we've been saved to. And until we see ourselves in, in this, with, with this portrait in the light of, of sin and just utter hopelessness, we won't really grasp the marvel of it all. And I trust that we, 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 take, we don't take sin lightly. Because if you take sin lightly, then you take the Savior lightly. And it's so important that we, that we get this. You know, as I was studying this, and, and as you study it, and it just it mounts up the argument, and there's just another condemnation, and it's just worse and worse, and, and it, it's, it's pressing down upon you, and you, and you realize what you were um, as a sinful human being, and you realize even the nature of your sin now. Up on my desk... There was, there's a, a chalkboard and it had, has a Greek word on it, telestai, to, to pay in full. 
And it just struck me each sin and all my darkness and malignity. It was placed on Christ and it was paid in full. May we never forget that. You know, to really grasp the moral perfection and beauty of Christ, we need to understand our absolute degradation before him. And, and <clears throat> as I was just uh, reading in, in uh, my morning devotions this morning, I read Psalm 45, and it was just such a breath of fresh air because it stands in, in such contrast to this passage, <coughs> speaking of Christ the King. And it speaks... <clears throat> of him who, whose, whose lips are not filled with poison and venom, but his lips of, of grace outpouring. And, and his, his life is scented and is, is, is the fragrance that's sweet and pleasing, not that stench of, of death. And what a contrast it is as you look at his rule. It's a rule of righteousness. And I just, this morning, as we close, I just, as we consider the nature of sin, I want to just, for us to just behold Christ and just the, the majesty and the glory of what he did and the beauty of his moral perfection as it stands in absolute contrast to our sin and our unrighteousness. You see, if you don't understand Romans 1 to 3, verse down to verse 20, it won't come with force, verse 20, 21, but God, but now God, it's the righteousness of God. Because the wrath of God has been revealed, but now the righteousness of God is being revealed. And it comes with such force when we understand the true nature of sin. My sin, oh the bliss, of this glorious thought. My sin not in part but the whole. And it was taken and it was nailed to the cross. It was laid upon our precious Lord Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. I trust we know the bliss of that glorious thought. We were accepted. We were thinking this morning. Accepted as sons by the Father. By virtue of that precious union that we have with the beloved let us just pray father these are uh, weighty things as we consider uh, man in his natural condition without you hopeless absolutely helpless and stained with sin but we thank you that you are a faithful god and that you can save and that you will save, and that God is true, even though every man be a liar. We thank you that you've given us those ancient words, the, the oracles of God. What a privilege. Oh, may the responsibility as it comes to us, may we not neglect it, but we would study it, and we would understand who we are before Christ, and just the marvel and the wonder of Christ in his moral perfection. May we have lofty thoughts of Christ today. We pray this all in your name. Amen.